The Trouble with Diversity. On this episode of Speaking of Diversity and Inclusion at the Mayo Clinic, we spend some time with Walter Ben Michaels, who's the author of The Trouble with Diversity, How We Learn to Love Identity and Ignore Inequity, and so uh, or, or Ignore Inequality. So in this session, you will hear me really struggling with some of the concepts and the ways in which... Uh, Walter sees the world and interacts and demands of us to 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 interact with the world in a more equitable way. Um, our race consciousness, our race identity, our uh, our playing in the uh, oppression Olympics, our role in the oppression Olympics, all get challenged in this interview. So um, I, I won't uh, I won't delay this any further. So let's get right to it. This episode of Speaking of Diversity and Inclusion at the Mayo Clinic. Because there are just enough people in the world who are skeptical of diversity, but who are not actually racist who want to read it. So, yeah. So, so what do you? So, so tell me. So, let's just get right to it, right? So, so first, tell me a little bit about you and how did you come to having writing this book or finding a need to write this book. Yeah, so I'm basically a professor of literature. Um, I teach American literature, although actually right now I'm the interim dean of the College of Architecture, Design, and the Arts. I also write about photography. Um, In the 1990s, I wrote a book called Our America, Nativism, Modernism, and Pluralism, and was about the role that the construction of our sort of modern-day notion of race and more modern notions of racism played in American literature in the 1920s. So it was about basically the height of scientific racism when people thought that races were really scientific entities, were real biological facts. And then it was about how they took that biology when the biology didn't work, they turned it into a kind of cultural thing. So on the one hand, it was a kind of critique of the idea of race and it was a critique of the idea of racism. And as I was writing this book and when it came out in the mid 1990s, I was really struck by the fact that even though there was this kind of increasing um, awareness that there really isn't, um, much that biologically corresponds to our notion of what race is, there was nonetheless increasing uh, enthusiasm for maintaining the idea of race and for producing uh, more sophisticated, more elaborate versions of racial identity. And I was thinking about why I thought that was working, and I was just struck by the fact that our commitment to increasingly emphasizing race and racialization, and indeed many different forms of identity, um, more or less was corresponded with um, what turned out to be an increasing economic inequality in American society. So if you look at things, sort of step back and look at what does it mean that both these things are happening together? On the one hand, we talk more and more about race and gender and sexuality and various forms of identity. And on the other hand, we have greater and greater economic inequality. It began to occur to me that there was a kind of relation between these two things and that one of the things he wanted to do was talk about race and gender and sexuality instead of talking about class. So the trouble with diversity, the first, um, the first version of it was written precisely out of an attempt to think about what it meant that we wanted to talk more about race and gender when in fact the greatest things that were the greatest forms of inequality that were increasing in our society were class inequalities. And that in fact, if you look at, um, while it's completely true that um, 
that say black people and, and Latinx people are overrepresented in the, in the bottom quintiles of American wealth and underrepresented in the top, it's also true, first of all, that the vast majority or the, the greatest single number of poor people are white people. And whatever their problems are, they're not the victims of racism, although now the Trump administration has sort of convinced them they are. Um, so that was one point, that is, what do you make of poor white people? But the second point was that if you thought about what the whole force of anti-racism was, a completely successful anti-racism would do what? It would take the population, which is, let's say, about 14% black, instead of 14% uh, black being overrepresented in the bottom of American wealth, there'd be 14% of the bottom. Instead of them being underrepresented at the top, they'd be 14% of the top. But the actual, the amount of inequality wouldn't have changed. All you would have changed is the skin color of the people who are suffering from inequality. So if you were actually worried about economic inequality, you could produce a complete triumph of anti-racism and anti-sexism, both of which I completely myself support, but you would have done nothing to alleviate the inequality of American society. So when you think of it in those terms, or at least my argument is, when you think of it in those terms, you realize that a lot of the energy that goes into um, insisting on the importance of diversity and more generally the importance of anti-discrimination, while completely justified in the sense that we absolutely should eliminate discrimination, will nonetheless have nothing to do with an egalitarian uh, economic system because it won't actually make the system more equal, it will just change the skin colors and the sexualities of the people who benefit from and the people who are the victims of that inequality. So, so um, uh, as, a, as a student of history and, and, and literature, um, would you, I mean, it, it's hard to know what, what King would have done had he lived. Um, however, do you, do you think that Dr. King could have helped us kind of get to that place and that race became kind of the proxy to, to get to this kind of looking at economic status as the, as an, an issue to create an egalitarian society? Yeah, you know, I mean, it's really true. So when I first wrote the book, you know, I did a big kind of speaking tour and media tour the way one does to try and sell the thing. And actually, I was on a show that you may have heard or watched, the Tavis Smiley show. And Tavis Smiley said exactly that thing. He said, look, isn't this what King was talking about, especially in the last year of his life? And the answer is yes. This is what he was talking about in the last year of his life. That is what he was recognizing was that the problem the deep problem is, is economic inequality, that it's for absolutely the case that black people are the most victimized by that in the U.S., but that the cure for it is not anti-racism, which is not to say that anti-racism isn't a good thing. It's to say that it isn't the cure for the increasing inequality of a class society. I mean, look, here's a really good way of thinking about it, one that relates in general to your industry. So my mother-in-law is in a nursing home here in Chicago. Um, she, uh, she needs to be in the home. She needs really almost, you know, round the clock care. The people who, who, who treat her in that nursing home are incredibly, um, skilled in the main. They are, um, deeply caring and they are paid about $21,000 a year. They're also primarily women of color. 
not exclusively, but primarily women of color. So here there are two ways of thinking about what the problem is. One way, the diversity way, is to think the problem is, is that women of color are overrepresented in these bad paying jobs. These women, if they just could have gone to college and had the advantages that say someone like, like I've had or, or you've had, then they wouldn't be have forced into these jobs and they'd have better jobs. And instead there'd be like more white guys in these jobs or more of in these jobs. So what is that cure? What that cures is the problem of diversity. That makes it so that if we could actually make that happen, the people who had these terrible jobs wouldn't be so many mainly women of color. But why is that the big problem? The big problem is that we pay these people who are doing extremely important work. We pay these people $21,500 a year. And in fact, it's the largest growing job category in the US. You know, President Obama used to say, everybody needs to learn how to code. But if you look at the 10 fastest growing jobs, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, coding isn't in the top three. The top two are healthcare jobs, and the top one is precisely these people's jobs. So what should be our focus if we want a more egalitarian society? Should our focus be on helping everybody avoid bad jobs? Or should our focus be on making the bad jobs into good jobs? The whole point for me of the argument that I've been making, and it's not just me, there are a bunch of others as well, but the whole point for me is that if you don't start, if we don't start, and again, taking healthcare as an example because it's such an increasingly important part of our economy, if we don't start taking those jobs, the jobs that we come into every day, the jobs that we're working for people like my mother-in-law, and you know, I'm getting older myself, for me, maybe five or 10, 15 years from now, and for you, 30 or 40 years from now, if we don't make those jobs better, if we don't make those jobs the jobs the kind of people want to have, we're a, hurting them, and B, hurting ourselves. And as long as we think the big problem is the skin color or the sex of the people who have those jobs, we're missing the fundamental point, which is the big problem is that those should be jobs in which people are paid a living wage and they're not. So, so, so I work in a, uh, so, so we are a, a, a hospital. We're also in, um, uh, we also train doctors. So we have uh, an, an education aspect to, to what we do. And um, so, so, so I'm curious to your impressions of how affirmative action has, was originally supposed to be a tool to help us get to that place. But, but what, what, has, what has affirmative action become? Um, uh, I, I, don't, you know, I don't really agree with you. I don't think, affir- I, I, look, I have no problem with affirmative action. Um, I've never thought, but affirmative action is what it is. It's what it was designed to be. Affirmative action was designed to make sure there were like more doctors and lawyers of color. It was not designed to make sure that we, that we had like socialized uh, healthcare, to use an old fashioned term. It had nothing whatsoever to do with that, you know? Uh, if you look at our healthcare system, what's wrong with our healthcare system? One way you could put it is say, well, we haven't got enough doctors of color. I'd be happy to have more doctors of color. My, my mother-in-law's best doctor is a black doctor. I'm cool with that. But that doesn't solve the basic problem. If you look at our healthcare, I'm not talking about Mayo now, right? Although, you know, there are some issues about Mayo. I could have looked up online. But if you're looking at our healthcare system in general, you know, we rank near the bottom of the so-called wealthy countries 
in terms of our ability to deliver health care to poor people. Um, I mean, I, I, I just did a few minutes research. Healthcare is not, you know, my specialty, but I, I'm familiar with a lot of these reports and a lot of these data. So if you look at the United Kingdom, you know, 7% of people with lower incomes report that costs keep them from getting the health, health care they need. In the U.S., 44% of people with lower income do that. That's not a diversity problem, right? That's a problem that stems from the fact that we have a healthcare system which is structured to succeed in a capitalist economy. And in order for it to succeed in a capitalist economy, to succeed without massive, without being turned into, a, in effect, a state service, it has to follow certain kinds of, in effect, economic rules. And to follow those economic rules is to produce a problem for poor people in the U.S. So the, the best way to deal with our healthcare problem would have had nothing to do with affirmative action. I would completely and do completely support affirmative action, but if you do affirmative action without healthcare for everyone, without some version of, a, of something much stronger than Obamacare, not to mention much stronger than the weakened version of Obamacare that the Trump administration is doing that. If you don't, if you do affirmative action without that, you've just got what we've got now, which is a few more black doctors, a few more Latinx doctors, a few more gay and lesbian doctors, whatever. That's not the problem. Yes, we should have more gay and lesbian doctors. Yes, we should have more black doctors. But if we don't have health care that's free for everyone, it doesn't matter with the skin color of our doctors. Are. So, so what I hear you saying, I mean, it, it, I, I just wanted for our, for the listeners, I, I really want to, uh, I, I really want to kind of make this a, a crystal clear point and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but, but what I actually hear you saying is we've been trying to solve uh an apples and oranges problem by using um, uh, screwdrivers and hammers. <laughs> yeah, so the apples and oranges and the screwdrivers and hammers get me a little confused, but I actually think you got it, you're making the point very well. We've been trying to solve one problem. The problem we've been trying to solve is a more fair representation of different identities at all levels of American society. So, and that, and we've made some progress towards solving that problem, although actually not very much. But we made some progress toward doing it. But while we've been trying to solve that problem, this other problem, which is a much more fundamental problem, has been getting worse and worse and worse. That is, during the years we've been trying to solve that problem, inequality, economic inequality in American life has gotten worse and worse. Things like unions have gotten weaker and weaker. So healthcare, Obamacare, which was definitely a good thing, although not good enough, has gotten now weakened again. So all the things that we're designed to do for poor people, we're not doing any of those things for poor people. We're just trying to give a few more of them the chance to escape poverty. That is to get to go to Harvard and get to become a doctor at the Mayo Clinic. So it's great for the few kids you give that opportunity to, but that just gives the opportunity to get more kids into the upper class. Whereas what we want to do is start to diminish the relation, the difference between the classes. And, you know, we can do it in a much less radical, I, I look, I, you know, I'm a hardcore socialist. I'd like to get rid of private property in general, but let's not worry about that. And the trouble with diversity was not written from that perspective because you know what? There aren't that many, especially I was writing it, hardcore socialists. And we wanted people to actually read the book. 
The trouble with diversity is written from the perspective of saying, look, you don't have to be a hardcore socialist to think that we should actually have a healthcare system that was free for everyone. It's less expensive for the country as a whole, and it's better for poor people. And if you were to do that, again, we're focusing on, the, on, on your area of expertise and the Mayo Clinic's area of expertise, that makes a transformative difference in the relation people have to each other. Fine, you don't live, if, you're, if you make $35,000 a year, you don't live in the same kind of house as someone who makes $3.5 million a year. But if you can have access to the same kind of healthcare, that's a kind of equality that's worth fighting for. Yeah. And then going back to what I said before, you know, if you look again, just sticking with healthcare workers, if you look at it and say, okay, this is the fastest growing job category in the country, affirmative action makes no difference to these people. What these people need is for whoever ends up in this job, even if it's going to be all white guys 20 years from now, whoever ends up in this job in order to be able to live and to do this job needs to be making more than $21,500 a year. And if our system requires the companies that run these medical care facilities to be profitable, and if their profits depend upon exploiting their labor, you're gonna get what we have now, which is and it's bad for the workforce and it's bad for the patients. You know, you may not have had to deal with this yet, but if, if this is a podcast for like doctors and and nurses who are connected up with Mayo, I'm sure they know this as well as I do. Uh, my mother-in-law has been in a facility she's in now for something like two years. A completely characteristic experience is just as you get to really know somebody, with the many people working on her, people who are, are good at their job and are caring. First of all, you know they can't do as good a job as they would if they probably weren't working another job because they're making so little money. But second of all, they disappear after a while. They get fired or they just can't do it anymore because you know what? It's hard, hard work taking care of people who are almost totally disabled. And you're making 21,005 and you're working all the time and eventually either you screw up or you get too tired or whatever happens and you're gone. So just as, just as the patients come to love and trust somebody, two months later the person they love and trust disappears. That's not a problem that can be solved by diversity. It has nothing to do with diversity. And as long as we think that doing diversity is the kind of, or more generally, doing, doing um, anti-discrimination, which is in itself a good thing, right? But as long as we think that can help us solve this other problem, it's a con game. You know, it, so it's, it is what you said, apples and oranges, screwdrivers, and I can't remember your other one, like the round <laughs> hole for nails. That was good. It is that, but it's that with a really bad effect because it means that while we're trying to do the one, we're letting the other go. And that's what, in effect, we've done, not just in healthcare, but all over American society. And it's not just us, right? It's, it, that's true in, in, in Europe as well. Um, and it's true in the United Kingdom, although less true with respect to healthcare. Yeah, I, I thought it was interesting in your, your book, you also talked about diversity being kind of this sacred concept. Um, and, and you, you've really spoken well to um, the, the challenges with thinking about diversity. How do we overcome the, I mean, how do we not, how do we overcome some, the, the, the obstacles that this, the sacredness of this kind of diversity thing to actually get to a place where 
we actually can talk about those inequities? How do we get over those? Well, so here's a one way to get over by going through. If you say to yourself right now, so if you look at the American population, the people who are, who are overrepresented at the top in terms of income and wealth, we know are, are white people and, and Asian Americans. We also know there are lots of poor white people and lots of poor Asian Americans, but they're overrepresented at the top. Who are the people who are overrepresented at the bottom? Black people and uh, Latinx people, primarily, and Native Americans. So one thing you want to do is say, any, any plan that we produce to make poor people, all poor people, better off, whether it's healthcare, whether it's education, whether it's in terms of actually strengthening their ability to not get better jobs, but to take the jobs they have and make those into better jobs, like my little healthcare obsession people. Anything we do with that disproportionately benefits black people, Latinx people, and um, Native Americans. It disproportionately benefits them because they're disproportionately poor. So I'm fine with that. Actually, that's, that's, not, a, that's not a bug. That's a feature. Because what does that do? That says, look, we get that black people, Latinx people, and, and Native, Native Americans have been, have been uh, uh, the victims of American racism. And they for sure have. But you know what? The way to solve that problem with respect to income is not by anti-racism. We should for sure be against racism. But the way you solve it is by saying, hey, look, let's do this for all poor people. That has two advantages. It has three advantages. One is it's the right thing to do. Two is it disproportionately benefits um, uh, uh, minorities who have been victimized by racism. And third is it brings along the white people. You know, it says, look, we're not doing this for black people. We're not doing it for Native Americans. We're doing it for poor people. If you're poor, you're going to benefit from whatever it is we do. And if you're not, you're not going to benefit. So to me, the kind of universalism that's so often been criticized and that it's rightly criticized. We all know when you hear someone say, all lives matter. What they mean is, no, black lives don't really matter. Okay? But I'm not saying that. I'm saying a version of all lives matter when you say, no, they really do matter. And because they matter, you can actually do more for black people and do more for Latino and Latina people, do more for all those people who are victims of racism, but you do it with a kind of universal plan. So to me, you know, um, this was the great, this was the great attraction, for example, the Sanders campaign in, in uh, two years ago, which is the Sanders campaign, you know, I, I, uh, I'm sure he said some things, um, you know, which were not a, sufficiently PC for um, some people whose commitment to diversity, in effect, trumps their commitment to equality. But if you see the commitment to diversity as an expression of the commitment to equality, and not as a substitute for the commitment to universal equality, then what he was saying was the right thing. So for me, you can't do diversity effectively. You can't make it do what you want it to do unless it's a way of doing equality and unless equality is at the heart of it. If you do diversity without the equality, it's just a way of defending the inequities we have now, of saying, well, look, yeah, it's too bad that you know, 1% of the population has almost half the wealth. But it wouldn't be so bad if in that 1% of the population, there were the right number of black people and the right number of 
uh, of people of color in generally and the right number of gay people. So what I want to say is that I just don't think it matters who's in the 1%. If I want to be oppressed by the 1%, Right, it's not going to make me feel better if I'm a gay person. It's not going to make me feel better to say, "Well, at least some of the people who are screwing me over are gay." <laughs> How does that count as good news? So I'm Jewish. It's not Jewish. It's not good news for me to say, "Yeah, some of the fascist oppressors are Jews." You know, it just like does not help. The issue is not whether, you know, if you think about the affirmative action thing, people often say and have often said to me, uh, "Well, but don't you think affirmative action?" is good because when you get black people going to Harvard, you know, then other black people feel represented by the pe black people going to Harvard. I've always thought, you know, if you look at a whole bunch of poor white people and you say, hey, look, it's not so bad for you because look, look at all the white people at Harvard. They're there representing you. <laughs> the correct answer seems to me to be, no, they're not. <laughs> they're not there representing me. They're just there, yeah. you know, and they get the benefits of being there. I don't see how I get a benefit. Because no, it's a, white guys at Harvard. Yeah, I, I want to say your 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 arguments are um, are, are 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 founded. I mean, the, the, you have some some grounds for the positions that you're taking. Um, the, so, so how do what what do you say to to folks who say, um, you know, I can I can kind of get with you in, in terms of looking, you know, sh switching from kind of these racial identities to talking about. Um, economics and, and, and uh, social welfare in, in our society. But here's, here's their, their, their caveat, but isn't that, isn't pushing that um, reverse discrimination? How, how do you respond to people who might suggest that? Well, so the thing about it is I go back to say what I said before, which is a version of, if you push, I mean, let's imagine so the, my position is we should be for, for all forms of anti-discrimination, but if we just do anti-discrimination, then we're actually not only not changing things, we're just in effect enforcing the way they are by saying it's okay as long as people of color benefit as well. So my, my point about that is I, I want to be for all forms of anti-discrimination. But what I want to be saying also is that if we push for policies that create greater economic equality for all people. It's not disproportionately going to benefit white people. It's not reverse discrimination for white people. Because I go back to what I said before. Disproportionately poor people are black. Disproportionately poor people are Latinx. We're actually benefiting. You know, the way we do it now, we, we're, we're benefiting the creation of, of people middle-class people of color as if the cure to our problem were to have more middle-class black people, more middle-class um, uh, Latinx people, and more upper-class black people as well. But that leaves the class distinction there. What I want to say is if you want to benefit the vast majority of black people, you can't get benefit them by squeezing a few of them into the middle class and squeezing a few of them into the 1%. Most of them are going to stay where they are. The bottom 50% is the bottom 50%, whoever it's made up of. What you want to do is eliminate the difference between the bottom 20, 30, 40, 50% and that top group. And that disproportionately benefits people of color. So to me, you know, the more you do it for poor people, the more you're doing it for poor people of color because poor people of color are disproportionately 
in, they're not in the majority, but they're disproportionately overrepresented among the poor. So to me, you know, I mean, it might be a downside for someone to say, well, I wish it wouldn't benefit white people too. I think that's silly, but it might be a downside to say that. But, but dude, it's benefiting black people. It's benefiting Latinx people, and it's benefiting them a lot more than picking out three or four and saying, now you get to go to Harvard. Or picking yeah. out, you know, four or five and saying, now you got a better job. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm trying to, um, so taking out race in, in those things and really trying to hone in on, on what works, I, I just reflect on the fact that I was a Head Start kid. And so uh, oh, totally benefited from all those Johnson era uh, advancements in, in, or, or I, what I would consider investments in the, 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 the social welfare in the best of sense, the social welfare of uh, so-called people in poverty or, or, or pe poor people. For sure. And, um, and so I, I'm, wonder, I'm still wondering. Uh, but look, I mean, you benefited, and that's great, right? No one, I mean, no one thinks it's bad for people to benefit from those, and we support all those things. But those programs what were they in effect designed to do? They were designed to take kids like you, who probably also have certain kinds of abilities and certain other kinds of things, whatever it was, to take kids like you and give you a more equal opportunity to succeed, which you obviously have. The kids who, but if you look at the majority of kids, of course, they didn't succeed. And first of all, they couldn't possibly have succeeded because in fact, as we look at American jobs, the majority of jobs were being created, to go back to what I said before, were not good jobs like the ones you have. The majority of jobs being created are bad jobs, like the ones are currently bad jobs in, in, in that um, facility that I'm talking about where my mother-in-law is. So if you take you, you benefit from Head Start. Some other kid in that class didn't benefit from Head Start or, or went to Head Start and still didn't get it and is now like working in, in one of those bad jobs. What should a more equal society do? Should it try to create more opportunities for kids like you were to escape their condition? Or should it try to create a world in which their condition is made better, in which the bad jobs aren't bad jobs anymore? Head Start is designed all forms of equality of opportunity are designed to say, look, we haven't got a problem with inequalities. We just have a problem with the fact that not everybody has a chance to succeed. So what I'm saying is, no, the problem runs deeper than that. In a society where there are more and more bad jobs and where the gap between the rich and the poor gets greater, equality can't just be give all the poor kids a chance to escape. Equality has to be reduce the difference between being rich and being poor. Make it so that, in fact, you don't need to escape. What you need to do is when you get that job at the, uh, at, the, um, at the nursing home, hell, when you get the job at McDonald's, when you get the, all the jobs there are that are growing, make those jobs be jobs that a human person can live on with dignity, where the conditions of their work are not humiliating, where the pay they get is not humiliating, where the housing they get is subsidized by the state so they can have a decent house, where the health care they get is the same kind of health care that you can get because you work for Mayo Clinic and I can get because I work for the University of Illinois and have a good health care plan. So instead of providing avenues for escape for kids like you, 
provide avenues that are wide open where not everybody needs to escape and where the difference between the poor and the rich is minimized instead of maximized. Well, I, I have to tell you, I, um, I appreciate this conversation because it's really stretching how even, uh, even after I read your book, uh, even our conversation right now is stretching how I even think about not only my, because I'm, I'm stumbling over some things because I've always thought that education was in fact, uh, and you used the word escape. And I thought, I've always thought of it as being a stepping stone or a ladder or, or something like that. Um, I wrote and, a piece. I wrote a piece it, about education. Right? Yeah. Well, well, no, I just bring that up because that, that is supposed to be the, the great equalizer, right? That is yeah. the, the opportunity for education. And, and what you're suggesting is that it, it runs deeper than that, or it's even different right. than that. Right. So I want to say, um, yeah, what you just said, um, I think that you really get to the heart of the thing very fast. So I don't, I don't want to sound cynical here, right? Because um, I am a little cynical after all has gone down, but it's still, it's the point is not the cynicism, the point is a kind of idealism in the end. Let's imagine like a health, uh, um, an education experiment. Let's imagine that everybody in the U.S. was given the opportunity to go to a school as good as Harvard and that they were given the opportunity to do it free so that everybody got the chance so education if the problem was education everybody got a good education so who would be taking care of my mother-in-law somebody still be taking care of my mother-in-law would it be mainly um, women of color probably not uh, it would be whoever didn't do well enough on whatever tests they took getting out of their version of harvard to get into law school to get into medical school why? But it would still be somebody. Why would it still be somebody? Because everybody getting an education doesn't take away the fact that what the jobs our economy are growing are jobs that actually don't even require that education to work in that facility. You don't even have to have a high school education, although you do have to have a high level of skills, yes. not the kind of skills you're taught in school. You don't even have to have a high school education. So if everybody's got an education and, and then you put it up to, against a world where not everybody can become a coder, not everybody can become a doctor. The, the, the economy is creating jobs that are for, not even for nurses, they're for, they're for healthcare aides, they're for fast food workers, they're for all those people. Education is just providing some people with the opportunity to escape those bad jobs. So the cynical part is, you know, what I've been really struck by is that the more unequal our society has gotten, the more we have looked to education as if it could solve that problem. But education has no solution to that problem. Hmm. Education is just a way, a more fair way than we have now of sorting out the winners from the losers. Right now, it's not fair because if you look at a place like Harvard, just to stick with that example, and because they're in the news these days, the overwhelming factor about Harvard is not the racial identity of their kids, which actually now, they're slightly overrepresented with respect to African-Americans and even Asian-Americans, although the claim is one of discrimination. The overwhelming fact about them is that those kids are rich kids. Uh, the overwhelming fact about everybody at almost all the major universities in the country is that their median family incomes are way, way, way higher, you know, in the high 150s up to the 230s than everybody else. So that's unfair. 
But if we eliminated that, if we did my little thought experiment from before, and we made it that everybody could get a, as good a school, go to as good a school as those, we still haven't solved the problem. Because all that does is say, okay, fine. Now, even if you're black and poor, you're going to still get to go to a great school. But someone is going to still have to take care of Walter Ben Michaels' mother-in-law. And that someone is going to make $21,500 a year. So when we make education available to everybody, which now, of course, we don't, but if we did, would it be better? Yeah, everybody should have an education. I'm a teacher. I believe in that. But would it make for a more equal society? It would not. It would just mean that we could maybe make ourselves feel a little bit better about the people who got stuck in those bad jobs because we could say to ourselves, hey, you had a chance. You went to a really good school, just like Harvard. You, you took the test. I'm sorry, you didn't do as well on the LSAT or the MCATs as the other guys did. Someone's got to take those $21,500 jobs. Dude, it's going to be you. So if your idea of equality is justified inequality, if your idea of equality is being able to say to the losers, sorry, it's on you, and the winners can say to themselves, not only am I rich, but I deserve the fact that being rich, fine, education is the thing that matters. But if your idea of equality is to reduce the gap between the rich and the poor, if your idea of equality is to make those people in bad jobs actually better off, then the point is not to give them more education, although that would always be a good thing. The point is to make their jobs better. You're making me think, man. And the, the funny thing is, I'm not a quiet person, but uh, you're, you're, you're really causing me to, to to, to really analyze this, this diversity thing as uh, I think you, you said it in, in your cynical voice uh, that it may in fact in some ways be to make us feel better about how we justify these inequalities. Yeah, I always thought that's a little bit true. I always thought the thing about affirmative action was that the minute we really got going with affirmative action, every white kid on campus felt better. Because yeah. every white kid on campus thought, yeah, man, I'm not here because of my race. Yeah. Everybody gets a chance to be here. Yeah. So, again, I'm not against affirmative action, but you've got to think, who's it for? It's not for, like, it's not for making a more equal society. It's for letting a few more people of color into it and for making all the white people who would really feel bad if they were the victims, if they were the beneficiaries of racism, feel a whole lot better because they can now think, well, I'm a little more woke than I used to be. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. So uh, I will tell you, this this interview took a different direction than what I had planned. And uh, th so, no, it's... Um, well, sorry, we can do the other one someday if you want, you know. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I, I do I, a lot of these. I, 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 I have to say, you're a more, you're more interesting interlocutor than I often get. <laughs> so I'm grateful to that. But I do a lot of these. So I'm happy to do another one sometime if we want to do the one you wanted to do. Okay, good. No, no, no. This this is exactly what we were supposed to do today. So that that's what I believe. And uh, so, um, any last parting words? And then uh, we'll we'll I'll do a little space, do a, a, a exit, and then um, we can talk freely about the next steps and that kind of stuff. Any last parting words? Yeah, I just would be is that you know, first of all, I I really have enjoyed talking to you about this. The second thing I would Or your, and I don't mean just you, the Mayo Clinic is an important institution. 
you know, the Mayo Clinic does provide super high quality healthcare. The Mayo Clinic is an important institution um, where its success has been part of the increase in inequality in the delivery of healthcare to the American population. So you guys are in the belly of the beast, you know, because you guys are where it matters most. To me, when I think about what the Mayo Clinic can do, not just for diversity and inclusion, but for equality and for diversity and inclusion as an expression of our commitment to equality. What the Mayo Clinic can do is fight, you know, more strongly and more vividly and exemplify more strongly and more vividly what it would mean to have one's primary mission be to afford, to be able to provide low cost, no cost, high quality healthcare to the people it serves. That's the great goal. And the great goal is to take those statistics I mentioned before about almost half of people lower income in the US saying correctly that their healthcare and their access to it is affected by their poverty and creating a system in which no one's access to healthcare is affected by their poverty. No issue is more important. You know, the last midterm elections have shown that for all people, uh, you know, if black, white, whatever, for all people, healthcare is a big issue. I harp on it because it's more and more important in the world. In my own university, more and more kids come to university. They want to be healthcare professionals. In my own life, as my family gets older, I see more and more exposure to that world. Nothing is more important. No institution is more important than the Mayo Clinic, but I'd like to see the Mayo Clinic be a leader, not just in developing, you know, the important job of developing cures, of developing higher tech and more effective forms of treatment, but in the most important job of bringing those treatments to people who cannot now and never will under our system be able to afford to pay for them. That'd be my kind of final words. Well, we will, we will see you and raise you one. Uh, We have, uh, so, so um, a number of the things you, you mentioned as a hope for us are things that we hope for ourselves as well. So um, we put the, the needs of the patient first. And so, uh, yeah, to, to that end, um, just want to, again, uh, let folks know about uh, the trouble with uh, diversity, how we learn to love in, um, identity and ignore inequality. And there's a 10th um, anniversary edition out, so folks can, can grab that. Um, Walter Ben Michaels, it's been a pleasure being with you today. Um, I hope that we can engage in uh, more conversations. I'd love to do it. All right. All right. So this is Andre Cohen uh, speaking of diversity and inclusion at the Mayo Clinic, and we're out of here. Well, what'd you think? Uh, Were you challenged? Did it make you engage in some critical thinking about your responsibility or our responsibility in making sure that we look for opportunities to battle inequity. So um, this has been another episode of Speaking of Diversity and Inclusion at the Mayo Clinic. 
I look forward to seeing you in our next installment, as well as we look forward to seeing who you become. This is Andre Cohen, and have a great day.